Well, we're going to begin again, or we're going to pick back up in our study of the book of Genesis. Uh, as I said last week, we're going to take uh, a chapter a week, or a chapter per meeting, and, and go through the book of Genesis. And I'm not going to go verse by verse per se, but we're going to highlight uh, the major point of each chapter as we seek to understand uh, the beginning of all things and the way that God has organized and brought about the the history of man and and is orchestrating that even up to today and to the end of time uh, for his good and for uh, for our good and for his glory. And so we're going to look at a few verses in Genesis chapter two today. Uh, last week, we talked about the creation of man and and how that was unique among all the animals and how it uh, was particularly special because God gave us his image and made us his image bearers. And we're going to talk about that uh, again today a little bit as we go through uh, this passage in Genesis chapter 2. But we're going to read together verses 18 through 25. And then uh, I will pray and we'll get into the sermon in earnest. So let's read together uh, or I'll read out loud and you read and follow along with me. Genesis chapter uh, chapter 2 verse 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today to confess that you are the source of life. Lord, you are the source of all that has been created. You are the source uh, and the purpose behind all that has been made and the, the organization and the form and the order of it. Father, you are the source of right relationships. Lord, we come today acknowledging that although you have created all things good, including the family relationship, Lord, our relationships are far from perfect. Lord, we have strife within our, our uh, marriage relationships. We have strife within our family relationships. We certainly have strife within our government and within our society at large. And Lord, we, without your guidance and without your word, we don't know which way is up. And we certainly can see that in our own society that we don't even know what to call a thing anymore. But Father, you have created things good. Things have not always been the way they are today. You created them good, and it is through sin that they were corrupted. 
So, Father, we confess our own sin. We confess that so many times our pride gets in the way of our faithfulness in our marriage. We confess that so often our pride gets in the way of patience and loving kindness towards our fellow man in society. We confess that relationships in the world are not the way they should be because man and woman are not the way they should be. And yet you, in your patience and in your love, you have sent your son to make right the relationship between us and you and then to restore the relationship that we have with one another. And so, Father, I pray that we might see that in the word that you have given us today. Lord, that we might see the way relationship was really intended to be and that we might seek to restore those relationships that we have to that right standing. Father, may we first seek to restore our relationship to you through trust and faith in Christ. Father, bless me as I preach. May I say what you have given me to say. And may, I, uh, may you take away those words that would distract or lead astray. Father, I pray for the hearers of the word, that they would be open to receive, that you would unclog their ears, unstop their, uh, uh, open their hearts, that the word might go directly to them and their soul, and that they might be changed. Father, I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, you know, it's 2019, and it's the year after the Me Too movement uh, swept through pop culture and all that, that happened with that. And it's interesting that, uh, that with all that movement, there, household names like Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby and Kevy, Kevin Spacey all get caught up in the proverbial chickens coming home to roost for Hollywood. You know, for over a hundred years now, cinema has pushed the boundaries of what is acceptable in society. They haven't just pushed the technological boundaries to to film things in a certain way and to master uh, computer-generated art and, and all that they do that's so amazing and wonderful with movies today. But they have also pushed what is socially acceptable. I want you to think about this. I looked this up while I was preparing my sermon. Uh, Hollywood portrayed... Uh, I want you to think and try to guess. I'm not going to ask you to say out loud. When did Hollywood first portray the first sex scene? You might think it was in the 60s. You might think maybe the 70s or 80s. But no. 1933 was the first time that a sex scene was filmed in Hollywood. The first openly gay character was on a film in 1947. And the first blood-soaked killing was in uh, Bonnie and Clyde in 1967. With all of the boundaries that have been obliterated by Hollywood, you would think that we would have moved well past the sexual manipulation and subjugation that is so prevalent in our society today. But, oh, have we been wrong about that? In fact, the greatest examples of abuse in the last year or two years have come from executives and directors and actors who were the most prominent people in pushing the boundaries beyond where society would normally accept them. 
It seems that no matter how much we want to believe that men and women are more equal than they ever have been, even still we can't escape the very nature of things. This was showcased pretty well, I thought, in a recent speech that Glenn Close gave at the, uh, at the Golden Globes. You might have seen it on TV, but she was, she was accepting an award for her portrayal of a woman who was subjugated by her husband in a movie called The Wife. And Close, Close said this, I'm thinking of my mom who was sublimated herself to, who sublimated herself to my father her whole life. And in her 80s, she said to me, I feel like I haven't accomplished anything. And it was so not right. We have our children, we have our husbands, but we have to find personal fulfillment. We have to follow our dreams. We have to say, I can do that, and I should be allowed to do that. In 2019... After the women's suffrage movement of the 1920s, after the women's liberation movement of the 1960s, and even after the feminist movement that has gone all the way up to the present day, you would think that women would be free and equal by now. But there are still strains within every man and woman relationship. We still see differences that can't be overcome. No matter how much Society tells men that our masculinity is toxic or our desire to lead is harmful to the world. Men still can't escape that basic instinct. No matter how much, how high a woman might rise in the corporate world, she still can't escape that desire, that most basic of desires to have a family and to have a husband and to spend time in the family relationship. It seems that we are destined for relational strife, no matter how much we fight to be free of it. In attempting to explain why this is, ultimately most people just come down on the side of, well, really, it's just always been this way. In fact, the ancient pagans that lived in the days that the book of Genesis was written believed that men and women were created to be in strife. The Greeks, the ancient Greeks themselves, believed that the gods created women to be a torment to men. Now, men, don't you laugh. Okay, I'll write it down. But they believed that men, I mean, that women were ultimately created by the gods to keep men in check and to keep them uh, honest and to keep them from aspiring to be gods themselves. And so they, they believed, quite honestly, that women were ultimately evil. Um, the Canaanite kingdoms that surrounded the Israelites, they believed very much the same thing. They believed that women were really no different than any other property that a man might own. They might be uh, uh, cognizant and they might be able to reason, but really they were no different than a slave or a, a, a cow or anything else that a man might own. Now today we might think that we're... Uh, different and enlightened, but really if you listen to the way that people talk about relationships, if you listen to the way that we speak about the differences in men and women, really today we just say that we are the sum total of the chemicals that make up our body. We are nothing more than the electrical connections and the enzymatic impulses that evolution has built into us over millions of years. 
The ancient world might have believed that women were ultimately evil, and our society today may say that women are to be treated as objects and men as barbarians. But God's Word says something very different about this most important of relationships. All of Genesis chapter 2 is an expansion of the passage that we studied last week from Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, you have, in, starting in verse 26, this summary statement of God creating man and woman to be image bearers of Him. And as I said last week, uh, we find there that God created both male and female to be image bearers of the one true God. And now Moses wants to zoom in a little bit. This is not a, 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 a chronological part of the story. Basically what he's doing is he's given you a summary in chapter 1. And now in chapter 2 and 3, he's going to go back and say, now this is what happened in that summary. And so he drills down on the created work of God in making man and woman for himself. And we find in in chapter uh, 2, verse 18, that up until this point, God has made the light and it's been good. God has made land and water and it's been good. And God has made uh, uh, animals and they've been good. But now we find in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, that he looks at his creation. He looks at the man that he has made. He looks at the garden that he has made. And he says that there is something not good. You see, there's a theme that runs throughout Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And that is that everything that God has made has been in pairs. I don't know if you notice that as you read Genesis 1, but notice it next time you read it. That in Genesis chapter 1, you have God making day and night. You have God making sun and moon, earth and water. And then ultimately, pairs of animals. But unlike all those other pairs that God is making, we find in Genesis 2.18 that man, among all the other creation, is alone. And God says that in and of itself is not good. So to remedy this, God decides to use an object lesson. Now, we, we might read what happens with God making animals out of the dirt and bringing them to, uh, to Adam to name. We might read that as saying, well, God doesn't know what he's doing. But God knows exactly what he's doing. He's trying to show something to Adam. He's trying to use this experience to teach Adam something. In fact, there are three things that I want to show you that God is teaching Adam through bringing each of these animals to him. The first thing that... God is teaching Adam is that Adam, like every other thing that he made, is made for relationship. One, of, one thing that would stick out to Adam as God brought, paraded these animals by and showed him each animal and asked, will this one do as your helper? Will this one do as your helper? One thing that Adam would have noticed is each one of these animals had a mate. In fact, even the sun and the moon itself were made as complementary objects in the sky. And so Adam would have looked at this and said, there must be something unique in the way that God makes things, that things are made for relationship. 
And uniquely for Adam, this should have been significant because Adam is made as the image bearer of God himself. And so if Adam, as the image bearer of God himself, is made for relationship and it's not good for him to be alone, then what does that say about God himself? It says that God is intrinsically a relationship. That God from all of eternity has been in a relationship among the Trinity between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God made us for relationship because God is a relational God. Because God has personal relationship within the Trinity and because he made us to have a personal relationship with us. The second thing that God is showing Adam by this little parade of animals is that God is showing Adam that the work that he has given him to do in being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it cannot be done by himself. Now, men, this is an important little side note that I want us to pay attention to because our macho society that we live in, particularly here in the South, would say that we have to do everything on our own. And that you're really not a man unless you can do it by yourself. Right, ladies? How many times have your husband just leave me alone and let me do it, right? And, and sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes you're more in the way than, than the help. But sometimes men think that in order to prove that they're a man and that they have things in control, they have to do it by themselves. I mean, just think of our idols, right? John Wayne. I mean, no more rugged loner has ever lived in all of society than John Wayne. Think of the Lone Ranger, which incidentally, he was not alone, but he he is the Lone Ranger and he's admired for being alone. We think, and, and many men even try to live their lives this way, that I don't need my woman. I I want her for a particular need, but other than that, I don't need her to survive. I don't need her to, to fulfill my purpose in life. I don't need my family, so I don't spend any time with them because I don't want to get attached to them because really to be a man is to be alone. And I don't need my church family because it's just me and God out on the deer stand and that's what that's how I have a relationship with God but no we are not made to be alone in fact God says at the very beginning of the world with the first man who was the only man who has ever actually been alone he says it is not good we are made to be in relationship and in fact we cannot be complete Apart from relationship. Now I'm sure as God created each of these animals and he brought them through and showed them that they would have said, Adam would have said in one way or another that they were useful for one particular task or another. But they don't have the use and they don't, aren't the helper that Adam ultimately would need. And so the last thing that I want you to see about this create, this purpose of God in bringing these animals through, and the last thing I think God wants him, Adam himself to see, is that God himself would be the one who would define man's right relationship and what that right relationship should be. 
God alone was the only one who could provide a helper that was fit for Adam. Adam named all of the animals that God brought to him. And like I said, I'm sure that in that uh, this animal was fit for a purpose, but not a complete purpose. I'm sure he looked at a horse and said, hmm, that'll be useful for some, doing some work. I'm sure he looked at a cow and said, hey, that's useful for some nourishment. Uh, I'm sure he looked at a dog and said, hey, that's useful for basic companionship. But none of them was like him. None of them could reason and love and create and discover just like he could. So to have the helper that would bring fulfillment, God must create her. God must give him a person like him that was fit for him. So after exhausting all of his options, God puts Adam to sleep and performs a surgery. Now, uh, every English translation that I've ever read says that he took a rib from Adam's side. And my boys like to experiment with that and count their ribs and then ask my sister to count hers to see if she has uh, an extra one, you know, or we don't have one that she, she does. You'll find we all have the same amount of ribs. But, um, but the, the word there for rib in the Hebrew is actually the side. And the idea is not that he took a bone and made out of that bone a woman, but rather that he took flesh. In fact, that's what Adam said. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right? So it's not just that he took a bone, but he took a bunch of stuff out of Adam's side. Blood, sinew, bone, flesh, everything is taken to make this woman. And I think that there are two things that are meant to be symbolized in this creative work that God did. Did God have to form woman out of the side of Adam? No, she could have, he could have done it anyway. So there must be something that is meant by this. And I think there are two things that are meant particularly. First, God does not take from Adam's head or from his feet. Women are not created to lord over their husbands, nor are they created to be under his boot. They are created to be equal workers in the creation that God has made. They are created, women are created to be queens that rule and reign alongside of their king. That is the original purpose. Remember back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, it says that God created both male and female to be in the image of God. So both men and women are created equal in the eyes of God. They are equally image bearers of God. The second thing that I want you to see from the fact that women are created out of the side is that women are to be are made to be a helper that is fit for man. And the idea behind fit there is that it's of the same stuff is what that word really means. It it is from me. Okay? And so there are two things that are meant by this. First of all, women are irreplaceable. Notice God says it's not good that man should be alone. That man can't fulfill his purpose in ruling and reigning without a helpmate that will rule and reign with him. That is the only way that God can accomplish or that man can accomplish the purpose. He must be in a relationship where they rule and reign together. 
But secondly, while woman is equal to man in her standing before God as an image bearer, she is created in a unique role. Man is created to rule and woman is created to be a helpmate in that rule. Now, that's kind of a controversial thing to say. People don't like to talk about roles today and women having a particular role and men having a particular role. As I read that quote from Glenn Close, the point that she's making is that women ought to ought to be able to go do their own thing and have their own career and seek their own way in the world. And yes, women ought to be able to work and women ought to be able to have a career. But all of that is to go into the person or the one flesh union of the man and woman together as a unit ruling and reigning together in God's kingdom. Now, um, I thought of an analogy that might help explain that because we don't like to think that men today, that men and women are different and have different roles. But I want you to think about, and Miss Marianne will pr- appreciate this particularly, I wanted you to think about if I asked Miss Marianne to come up today and to play the last hymn that we played, but to only play the tenor part, would it sound right? No, it wouldn't sound right. It wouldn't sound like the song that we sang. If I asked her to play only the bass part, it certainly wouldn't sound like the song that we sang, or the soprano, or the alto. If we divided it out to its parts, and we all sang in unison the same part, it wouldn't sound like the song that it could be if we all sang the different parts. Because songs are not written to be sung in unison. They're written to be sung in what? Harmony, right? Each person singing their own part so that the song is realized to be the purpose it was written for. In the same way, man and woman are different because alone... They are not what God made them to be. But together, they fulfill the purpose that God has for the image bearers that he put in this world. And so we only can fulfill our purpose as the created image bearers of God if we sing our part. If we fulfill the role that God has given us. And the last thing we find in the created work of God is that God creates a covenant union. You'll notice in verse 24 of chapter 2, it says that man shall leave his family and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. God establishes the covenant of marriage as first among human institutions. This may shock you. It may not right now, actually. But government is not the first and most important institution. The church isn't even the first and most important institution. Institution, The most important and primary institution of the created world that God has made is the one man, one woman relationship of marriage. And this union says something about God as well. Just as God, because God has created us to be in a covenant relationship, it says that God is a covenanting God. God has relationship through making covenants with his people. So if God has created man and woman to be the perfect pair, why are things so messed up? 
Why does it seem that men and women are out to destroy each other and yet can't escape their need for each other? Well, the answer is found just a page over, and we'll get to it next week in full, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. When Adam and Eve sin against God by taking the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, it says in verse 16 that one of the curses that is pronounced, particularly on the woman, is that she will have desire for her husband and he shall rule over you. Now, our translations typically translate that she will desire her husband. But the idea behind that is not desire her husband, but desire the position her husband has. That she will want to rule over her husband, but her husband will rule over her. What that communicates is in the fall, not only did it bring sin, and not only did it bring death, but it also brought a turmoil in the marriage relationship itself. From then on, men and women were pit against each other. Woman wanted to rule, and man wanted to rule, and neither could work in the roles that God had given them because ultimately sin has corrupted everything, even the most basic of relationships that we have. So if this is our current state, how are things to be made right? It's apparent that a hundred years of feminist reforms have done very little to shape the hearts of men and women. Sure, women are, have more rights and are better protected from abuse, but still men are able to oppress women. Even the most educated and the most liberal among us can do it. If this most important of human relationships is to be restored, God must do it. And he has. And we see glimpses of that as we read through the Old Testament. Right? At the beginning, God makes a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and ultimately with the people of Israel. And that covenant is is symbolic of the marriage relationship or the marriage relationship is symbolic of that covenant. And then God even compares that covenant that he has with Israel to a marriage relationship. In fact, he sends his prophets to warn Israel about their idolatry. And like, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 9, he says that their idolatry is like adultery. That he compares the idolatry of them worshiping other gods to adultery, to unfaithfulness in a marriage relationship. Not only that, but he even tells a poor guy named Hosea to go out and marry a harlot named uh, Gomer as an analogy of the unfaithfulness of Israel to their God, uh, Jehovah. So over and over again, God warns the people of their unfaithfulness and he compares their unfaithfulness to that of an unfaithful bride. But what we also see is that God continually calls Israel back to himself. He is the faithful, pure, righteous husband who once and again over and over calls his people back. And then the scene changes a little bit. And Jesus Christ is born to an Israel who is in captivity to Rome because of their unfaithfulness. And what analogy does Jesus use to talk about his relationship to his people? Over and over again, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. 
In Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, he, he says that his disciples don't mourn or fast because the bridegroom is here. In John chapter 3, verse 29, John the Baptist is asked, if he's jealous of the success that Jesus is having in his ministry. And John says, no, because the bridegroom is here. And then not only that, but the first, think about the very first miracle that Jesus ever performed in John chapter 2. It says that he goes to a wedding supper in Cana of Galilee. And there his mother asked him to do something about the fact that wine has run out in the, in the reception. And so Jesus says, get some 60-gallon bottles of water and I will turn them into wine. And he does that. And it's so good that the master of ceremonies gets on to the servants because they brought the best wine out last. Now we miss what all that is about, but Isaiah chapter 25, 400 years before Jesus would ever come, Isaiah prophesies that the one day the Messiah will come and he will have a feast. And in that feast, there will be the best, most well-aged wine you have ever tasted. And so when Jesus comes and he turns water into wine, all the Jews think back to, he's the Messiah. He's that guy that's promised. Remember what he tells his mother. It's not my time yet. Why does he tell her that? Because he knew that this would be a direct connection to the Messiah, to the prophecy of Isaiah Chapter 25. But where does he do all that? At a wedding. Because the bridegroom is here. But oh, brothers and sisters, the most, the greatest way that Jesus has addressed our broken relationships is in his death and resurrection for us. We, like unfaithful Israel, were mired in our sin. Returning over and over again to our idolatry like Gomer the harlot to her whoredom. But instead of seeking justice by a divorce. Instead of calling for his unfaithful spouse to be executed by the law of Moses. Jesus Christ took the punishment that was due us. Ephesians chapter, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and 26, Paul says that Jesus is the example of the perfect husband. And you know why he says he's the example of the perfect husband? He says because he sanctified his bride by dying for her. That Jesus in his death made us pure where we were not pure. Jesus in his death, although we were unfaithful, he was faithful. And because of his faithfulness, he has declared us to be faithful and pure as well. Because Jesus has sanctified us, we can now have right relationships with each other. Paul says that very thing in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21. He says that we are to submit to one another as to Christ. And he goes on to say that wives are to submit to their husbands and husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. The perfect Christian marriage is not one where the man is totally obsessed with the needs of his wife, emasculated and subservient to her newfound freedoms. Nor is the perfect marriage one where a woman is under the boot of the man doing uh, his, his doing his bidding with precision 
out of fear or re- of rejection or abuse. The perfect Christian marriage is one where both husband and wife are focused first not on themselves and not on each other, but on Christ. And if both are focused on Jesus Christ, then they will serve Jesus by serving each other. So friend, your relationships with, with others will never be right until your relationship with your Creator is first made right. And you cannot do that. Try as you may, you will keep returning to your idolatry. You will keep returning to your disobedience. Only Christ can deliver you from uh, the bondage of your sin. And only Christ can declare you right before God. Trust in Christ today and follow Him. Know Him as your heart's delight. And you will find that the relationships that you have with other people, even your spouse, will begin to change. Brothers and sisters, as the church, we are the bride of Christ. It is no insignificant thing that Eve is taken out of the side of Adam. Because I believe that that is meant to symbolize a much greater creation that was to come. Because just as Eve was taken out of the side of Adam, so too was the church taken out of the side of Christ. As Jesus hung on the cross and was pierced in the side, blood and water flowed out. And the blood and water that flowed out of Christ is the blood and water that purifies us and that makes us a part of his kingdom, makes us a part of the church. Jesus created the church through his death and his resurrection. And it is with that blood that Jesus promised as he took the last supper with his disciples that he would establish a new and everlasting covenant. That new and everlasting covenant is what we celebrate today as we take the Lord's Supper. In this supper, we are reminded that Jesus has sanctified us through his blood. We are reminded that he has given us his body. And as he has given us his body, we are now a part of that body. And we are able to serve him by living out our purpose in this world. So today we're going to take the Lord's Supper as a reminder of the purifying work of Christ and the covenant that he has made with us as his bride. And as we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are the God that has made all things. And Lord, ultimately, you have created your church through your son to be in perfect union with you as a perfect bride, purified and sanctified by the work of her husband and brought to a new relationship, a new standing before her father. Father, we thank you for that new relationship that we have through your son. Father, as we take the Lord's Supper, may it be a reminder to us of the sacrifice that your son made for us so that we might be convicted of our sins, that we might be drawn to a new and better relationship with you, and that we might be built up in our faith, and that we might be reminded of the covenant that is made with us, an unbroken covenant that you continue to be faithful to. Father, bless us now as we take from this uh, table. And may it be for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.
At this time, I'd ask the deacons to come forward and administer the.